You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 23rd of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Henry Reese Sheridan. On today's show, would a no-deal Brexit lead to anarchy in the UK? At least one captain of industry seems to think so. My guests Daniela Pellet and George Brock will be weighing up his claim and discussing the day's other top stories, including... Israel has been lauded for evacuating white helmet humanitarian volunteers out of Syria. We'll take a closer look at the diplomacy behind the move. We'll also ask if a US tabloid group overstepped the mark in their support of Donald Trump in the run-up to the 2016 election. And... Would you drive a car made by a premium scooter manufacturer? All that to come on Midori House with me, Henry Rees Sheridan. Hello and welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Daniela Pelled, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and George Brock, Journalist and Visiting Professor at City University. Welcome both of you to the programme. Let's begin in Britain, where Doug Gurr, the UK boss of online retail giant Amazon, has made a typically soothing and measured contribution to the debate around Brexit. Mr Gurr has warned that Britain could face civil unrest within weeks if it leaves the EU without a deal. He made the remarks during a meeting between Brexit Secretary Dominic Raab and a group of senior business executives on Friday. Uh, George, to begin with, bring us up to speed. What is the likelihood of a no-deal Brexit at this stage and what could it look like? The likelihood is much higher than it was, let's say, a month ago because the government attempted to get a position together at what's known as the Chequers meeting or the Chequers deal And that has already, in effect, fallen apart. None of that alters the fact that Mrs May never had a consistent parliamentary majority for any strategy she was trying to get through. She can win tactical victories here and there and does. But what she needs in order to avoid a hard Brexit is a whole series of parliamentary votes between now and approximately January. And I can't see any more sign now than the day after the election that that she's got those numbers. So... Therefore, with the falling apart of the latest deal she's tried to stitch together, you if you are a business operating across borders of any kind, Amazon or anyone else, you have to say that the percentage chance of a hard Brexit has gone up. I think it's somewhere, I would say it was about around 50-60%, my personal guess. Daniela, do you concur with that? Um, I, think it's, uh, I think the stalemate is perilous in itself. People are now talking about the idea that we can get this uh grace period extended which also seems unlikely i kind of relish the uh, these are kind of apocalyptic warnings since we're already in such a dire situation already and uh, considering how um this country does when it's too hot or too cold and the virtual scenes of panic i can't imagine what things will be like when we have actual supply lines of of ordinary everyday goods interrupted it's not helped of course by the fact that the government has to do these risk assessments and industry of the worst case scenarios in the same way that people are always sending freedom of information requests to local councils on their preparedness for zombie apocalypse similarly similar uh, preparations are, are taking place which ranks up the atmosphere 
even more. But having come thus far, I think, well, my my personal view is Project Fear wasn't fearful enough. We might as well go full apocalypse and see what happens. So you seem to approve of the statement from a kind of aesthetic viewpoint. You like, you like to imagine the civil unrest. And also from a kind of strategic viewpoint, which is that if this can prevent a hard Brexit, then, you know, that's a good thing. But do you think that it's it's plausible? And I mean, I'm trying to get a kind of idea of like what a no-deal Brexit w- would actually look like on the ground. Well, will we see like ravaging hordes streaming to the streets? I, I, I think the British people are far too polite for that. But I think we are really losing our, our mind on this whole uh, issue. And the fact is we're so distracted by Brexit and all its permutations that we're not really doing anything about anything else. So, well, the veneer of civilization can often be very, very thin. Um, but I, 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 I appreciate that captains of, of industry are saying this is going to be awful and much worse than you imagine. George, how bad would it be? I think that civil unrest at any scale is at the outer edge of possibilities. I think you're much more likely to get vast traffic jams, goods shortages, jobs eventually being lost because supply lines don't work, people being laid off. Those are that those are the much more prosaic possibilities that are that are far more likely. And these business people after all, I w- I would say if anything they have been very reticent and very late in making these warnings. They have been thinking about all of these things for 2 years now. Um, and I, I kind of would have preferred if they'd been running Project Fear a little bit earlier. I think it might, I think it had a, might have had a more, more dramatic effect. And they would be criminally irresponsible if they were not thinking about any possibility, including the extremely unlikely ones. They have a responsibility to their customers, to their shareholders and so on. And if they're not doing it, they shouldn't be in those jobs. Ever since the referendum, there have been some Remainers who have held out hope for a second referendum. Uh, those calls have become louder as we've got closer and closer uh, to uh, the deadline. What do you think about the chances of a second referendum happening? And do you think it would be a good idea at this stage? Well, I'm an out-and-out Remainer. I would be very happy for anything that would sabotage this process. But being realistic, what would a second referendum look like? What would the questions be? Would the questions be, uh, do you want to stay in the European Union? Do you want a final vote on EU deal? Do you want a hard Brexit? It would have to be a, a three-way uh, question, which is unprecedented. I, the referendum was not a good way of dealing with this issue in the first place. So I can't see what a second, second referendum will achieve. It will achieve people saying, well, the voice of the people wasn't listened to. And I don't think it will come up with a, a plausible answer. What would be great right now would be some sort of form of functioning government. And we haven't got civil unrest yet. But we're in a we're in a position, as George says, there's no real majority. There's no real way of doing anything. A, one Brexit deal, as soon as it rises up, it's knocked down again. And um, it might have been better, really, for the uh, uh, Brexiteers had they had an actual Brexiteer as the leader of the government. And then we might have some clarity and some clarity about what to be protesting against. George, what do you think of the prospects of a second referendum? And aside from that, what other ways of the government to get out of this deadlock they're in are there? I think a second referendum is a fantasy. The only circumstances in which I could think it occurring would be if there was a general election at which a party was arguing for a second referendum. And I do not think that party, and I can't see the odds, uh, the odds of that happening are very low. 
and I just can't see them winning an election. And therefore, I, I, I do not think you could achieve that merely by a vote in the House of Commons. That, that really would be asking for political trouble and indeed would be asking for civil unrest, I would have thought. Um, so I don't, I don't think any politicians are going to try that. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a very long way off. Um, I, I think the chances that we're going to have an election by accident are quite high. She doesn't. I, I keep repeating because I because I'm tired of political commentators just assuming people understand this because they don't. She is really, really short of the numbers in the House of Commons. They are living vote to vote at the moment. They simply don't know what they can get through and what they can't. And if she gets stuck, Mrs. May gets stuck in the autumn. What options does she have other than precipitating an election, which she may not even intend to have, but but the wrong vote which forces the calling of a confidence vote, and there are very strong conventions about the circumstances in which you've got to do that, and I'm sure she would obey them, she's that kind of person, that plunges into an, into an election at exactly the moment we can't afford any delay. So I'm afraid I'm rather pessimistic. And Daniela, if an election was called, remarkably polls give uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party currently a five-point lead uh, in, in such an election. Would the country be better off in their hands? Uh, there's a very short answer to that, and it pains me to say this as, a, as somebody who's voted Labour my whole life, but absolutely not. I can see nothing more disastrous uh, than a Corbyn-led Labour government, not just because of its economic policies, but also because of its uh, of its international alliances, foreign policy stances on Syria, the Middle East, Russia, Iran. There are no words almost to describe what a mess... Uh, we would get into. I don't think they would be competent in in managing Brexit and they're in a funny position of being supposedly a party that supported Remain but no one knew this and they didn't do very much to win the vote. Perhaps that's what we need though perhaps as a Labour supporter that's also what, what the party needs. Uh, we need to go reach rock bottom until we can build ourselves up again and that perhaps might go for the country as well so not an optimistic uh, reading from me either. Well, you just mentioned uh, UK foreign policy in the Middle East. We're going to head to the Middle East now, where hundreds of volunteers in the Syrian Civil Defence Organisation and their families have been evacuated to Jordan by the Israeli Defence Forces. The organisation, known as the White Helmet, works to save people in Syria's war zones. They had become trapped in an area in the southwest of the country near the border with the Golan Heights after an offensive by the Syrian military. Um... Daniela, turning to you first, uh, let's talk about the diplomatic operation behind this. Israel did this at the request of the US, the UK, Canada and other European countries. It seems to be demonstrating a, a softer side of the Netanyahu government, but what's in it for him and them? Well, Syria has been quite useful for the Netanyahu government right from the beginning, uh, when in terms of uh, the fact that there are Israeli hospitals and medics that are treating wounded Syrians uh, near the border. Now, without maligning the uh, motivations of those doing that work, it's undoubtedly been exploited as a massive PR coup, um, both domestically and internationally. I can't tell you the number of times that Israeli diplomats or spokesmen have offered me this great exclusive story to go and interview wounded Syrians in an uh, Israeli hospital. I, it's important and it's great that they're, they're doing that, but to what extent they are impacting on the war is also unclear. They have delivered some aid to some rebels. Um, their main concern, Israel, is to not have an Iranian outpost 
on their border. And in terms of the white helmets, they did the evacuation very smoothly and very efficiently. There wasn't really a stop in Israeli territory. They handed them right over to the, the Jordanians. For the Syrians and, and their allies, this plays into their propaganda that the White Helmets are actually a terrorist organisation. Uh, behind many of the attacks, they're purported to be helping the victims of. Um, Russian diplomats have been tweeting madly about the terrorist group and the links with, with Israel. But you know, as the Syrian war enters its final stages, it's still very much about what people want to believe rather than actual real, real facts and people have been quite enamored of the of the Assadist and, and the Russian narrative. Ge- uh, German, sorry, George. Uh, Germany, uh, the UK and Canada say they're going to resettle the evacuees within three months. Why do you think these countries have been so proactive about this move when migration and asylum is such a political hot potato in each of them? Because the numbers are very small. And after all, if we just step back from the detail for a second, what we're dealing with here now is the tidying up operation. The Syrian government is basically winning this conflict. And I don't suppose that Syria or its ally Russia are particularly stressed to have taken off their territory some hundreds of people who are exactly the kind of people who provide eyewitnesses of chemical attacks and other horrors that occur. Um, So in other words agreeing that they could leave without being fired at or shot at or whatever presumably wasn't that hard in principle to get a deal to get a deal struck and i think you know it's fairly easy for the governments that are taking these people to say this is a very special situation and the numbers are very small i mean one of these countries i can't remember which it is is taking precisely three families i think it's probably not going to alter the population balance very far daniela should this move be celebrated by the west or not on the one hand it does you know, seem to be a legitimate humanitarian move. On the other hand, uh, as George just stated, it's also seems to be a symptom of a successful offensive by the Syrian military. And it looks like, you know, they are beginning to uh, uh, be dominant in this conflict. Uh, We shouldn't be proud of anything, really, that we've done in relation to this conflict, apart from perhaps taking in refugees, of which we haven't done enough. And our our whole approach, I mean, it's very broadly speaking, but not that the EU can agree on very much, but approach to the refugee crisis has not been uh, has not been successful, and it's, I don't think it's been moral either. The war is pretty much over. This is the end, and Assad has won. I think the the governments taking in refugees are on a win win, really, because while the public are worried about masses of uh, amorphous migrants and refugees sweeping. Uh, Europe. There's the idea that these are good ones. Though. These are the good guys. You can take in a few good guys. The White Helmets have had a, a Hollywood documentary about them. You know, these are brave people, and we can take in uh, these sort of scenic, uh, cinematic type uh, folks. That other masses of people who have been displaced is something else. Um, it's a very, very sad day. It's a very sad day. These were the the first responders, the people who were providing rescue services and basic first aid when there was nothing there and what is going to fill the vacuum Assad is going to fill the vacuum and that's something really to be mourned George I want to ask you another question about uh, kind of the optics of this move uh, for the western governments that are taking these people in and also looking a little bit ahead to the future about how 
they might deal, uh, particularly European politicians might deal with the the ongoing refugee crisis uh, in their countries. Horst Seehofer, uh, the German interior minister who's given Angela Merkel a lot of grief over her uh, open doors uh, refugee policy, uh, has supported the move. Germany is going to take in eight White Helmet members and their families and says that this is an expression of his stance of ensuring humanity and order in his migration policy. Do you think that we're going to see more of this from politicians on the right, the selective uh, kind of trumping up of moves to take in kind of the right kind of refugee as a way of balancing uh, liberal mainstream concern with the ascendant right wing? I would love to think that might be the case, but I have to say, Henry, I don't think it, I don't think we will see any of this. I think the White Helmets are a completely exceptional example. They count as, you know, as exactly as Daniela says, they count as humanitarian workers of moral excellence. Their numbers are very small. Uh, it's therefore fairly easy for these governments, which are th- often threatened by parties of the right, saying you're taking too many migrants, you're not too, putting the process under proper control and so on. Um, for that opposition to be temporarily, but I stress temporarily, brushed aside for this exception. I'm afraid I don't think the general politics and demography of the refugee position is going, is going to change at all. Let's not, for, let's not forget, while a few hundred white helmets and one or two others were being smoothly passed out, a very, very large number of people are sitting in refugee camps on the borders of Syria, in Jordan, Lebanon, elsewhere. I think what we're likely to see now as the uh, war draws to its bloody conclusion is that the Western governments are going to start saying, well, there is no active conflict in Syria and actually people can go back there. And we're having asylum seekers who are told that they can go back to Iraq and go back to Afghanistan, but places which are really not very safe and so unsafe that they're not even being deported. They're being left in limbo. So I think that is probably the next step on this uh, of this sorry tale. People, refugees and Syri- uh, Syrian refugees in Europe, time to go back. I think just before we move on, we should touch very briefly uh, upon you know where is the Syrian government and Russia, its main ally, where are they going to be looking now at this juncture? Well, they're, they're going to quietly celebrate a military victory. That's what they were after from the start. Um, I have to say that the history of Syrian governments uh, in with opposite with armed opposition is pretty brutal. So once they have, I mean, they've now eliminated opposition in the southwest of the country. That's what this movement was particularly triggered off this operation. And uh, I'm afraid in the past, the Syrians have gone ahead and killed an awful lot of people. I think we can't rule out a certain amount of revenge and mopping up of a particularly vicious kind. I think that's a, I think that's a given. And I think also they're going to be looking around for international donations to rebuild the country that they've destroyed. Not many, not many actors will be keen on donating. You're listening to Midori House with me, Henry Rees Sheridan, Daniela Pellet and George Brock. Coming up next, a big scandal and a small car. Summer is finally here, and so is Monocle's bumper July-August double issue. This is when we zero in on quality of life and cities, why we love them, what makes them actually work, and how they need to improve. As always, we reveal our ranking of the top 25 cities to live in worldwide. Find out if your city makes the cut. And for the first time, we present our manifesto for creating a more relaxed city. A guide to breathing in and lightening up. And a celebration of everything from taking your kit off to making a bit of a racket. 
In the affairs pages, we meet the urban heroes giving back to their hometowns. While in design, we take a closer look at greenery in the city and how to do it right. Elsewhere, we take a dip in Geneva's top swimming spot, we tuck into some northern Spanish grub, and we sit down for a mass with the locals in a few Bavarian beer gardens. Prost! That's all in the July-August issue of Monocle on newsstands everywhere now. Or head to monocle.com to become a subscriber. Welcome back to Midori House. I'm Henry Rees Sheridan. Still with me in the studio are Daniela Pellet and George Brock. Let's head to the US now, where the plot surrounding President Donald Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, has thickened to a gelatin-like viscosity. The investigation looking at the work Cohen did to quash embarrassing press in the run-up to the 2016 election has found that a tabloid company, American Media Inc., may have at times acted more as a political supporter than a news organisation. George, enlighten us. Who are American Media Inc. and what are they alleged to have done? American Media Inc. are strictly speaking a conglomerate, but there's only one of their publications that really counts here, and that's called the National Enquirer. National Enquirer is a uh, originally print publication which makes, for example, the son of Britain look positively prim. Uh, They're into really wild stuff. But they're not unimportant because they are the leading supermarket tabloid in one of the largest markets in the world. So that makes them influential, whoever owns them, whatever, whatever they're doing. The combination of the election of Donald Trump and online communication has produced an enormous debate in the United States about what really we mean by free speech and free press, for which most of our laws date back, and crucially, the First Amendment of the American Constitution dates back to the late 18th century. So they're, they're in a tangle. The, the detailed tangle here is that if American media and the National Enquirer were suppressing a story rather than, in other words, they were buying it in order to kill it, an operation known in tabloid jargon as catch and kill, if that's what they were doing, and they were doing it, and it was proved they were doing it for purely political motives, lawyers could argue that they lose their First Amendment to free speech, free press defence. And I just want to jump in here and clarify, they have specifically been, uh, well, it's been alleged that they received payments from Donald Trump directly in order to what? Well, to kill to kill a story. To kill a story via, about via an affair lawyer. between... And that, and that in itself, right. if proved, would be probably, very probably, a violation of American electoral law. So AMI is in, you know, is in the, is in the crosshairs of some prosecutors already. Daniela, uh, a lawyer from the company has asserted, uh, or excuse me, has said that the company has asserted and will continue to assert its First Amendment rights in order to protect its new gathering and editorial operations. Is this a First Amendment issue? And if so, are the company in the right? Well, that's a very complex legal question that uh, sadly I'm not not qualified to answer. But I think George is right that we need new laws and the First Amendment doesn't really apply to these kinds of uh, 21st century situations. When it comes down to partisanship and fake news and all the other issues that accompanied Trump presidency. The line between freedom of speech and um, out-and-out political activism is very blurred. And that's happened here as well, definitely. And this is an effect of of social media and, and the internet. 
So we can no longer be quite so clear about what media outlets' political uh, leanings are. I mean, sometimes they're quite public, but what is actually going on behind the scenes is less clear. George, can we expect the law to catch up with the internet in this uh, particular uh, sphere anytime soon? Only very slowly. I think what we're looking at is the beginning of a change of climate and culture and opinion. The First Amendment of the Constitution, uh, which guarantees essentially the freedom of publication if you can define yourself as the press, has been broadly by the courts over the centuries uh, drawn very, very wide. And I think that what is going to happen in the States is that people are going to realise that this, rather than being an absolutely wonderful precedent-setting principle, which is broadly how a lot of people, the majority of people have thought about it, is actually going to... It has become a burden and a problem. But it's an amendment to the Constitution. Changing an amendment to the American Constitution is a huge undertaking. And opinion on this kind of thing changes probably not in months, but in years. But I think also we're looking at outlets like Facebook, which are now getting to understand that they are producers in a way of news rather than just uh, just reflectors or dispassionate uh, platforms without even any any huge action to change any amendments. I think they're starting to move on this uh, as public perceptions change and already taking uh, action to, to change this. Uh, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of aspects which are going to push this change happening. And as, as Daniela exactly rightly says, the platforms... Facebook has been creeping closer and closer and closer to accepting, without ever quite saying so in direct terms, editorial responsibilities, we, are an, we, are, we take editorial decisions. And if they, get included, if they attempt to take First Amendment protections, then a lot of responsibilities are going to go with that. And people are going to say, wow. That's big. That's two billion people on the planet. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about this particular kerfuffle around the National Enquirer is that it's a an old media scandal uh, that kind of touches upon uh, uh, issues, questions around the First Amendment that have been made salient uh, by very much new media. Um, and maybe just before we move on, very quickly we can touch upon the American tab- tabloid landscape more generally. We heard this morning that the New York Daily News, one of the country's most prominent tabloid has entered into its latest round of layoffs. They're going to lose roughly half the newsroom. What does the, the future hold for American tabloids? I think very, uh, I honestly think very little, with the, with the exception of perhaps of, of the giant, which is the National Enquirer, which is wilder, more foolish, more inaccurate, less reliable than, than anybody else and was always prepared to outdo everyone else. But the New York Daily News wasn't really in the, wasn't really in the same league. They have been squeezed by online, where outrage and annoyance and everything else just do better. Print, print was their origin. It's squeezing them to death. I think if people want pure gossip and uh, and salacious tittle tattle, you don't really need the whole uh, industry of a newspaper to to back it up. We don't even need to try really to make sure that things are true. Finally on today's show, Micro Lino, a tiny electric car manufactured by Micro, the Swiss company behind the scooters of the same name, 
has been approved for use on European roads. They may be gracing the strassers, roos and veers of Switzerland by the end of the year. But will they catch on? Some specs to enable you to make this evaluation. 0 to 31 miles an hour in 5 seconds and a top speed of 56 miles per hour. It's got a rechargeable battery that can plug into any standard European electricity outlet. I quite like that feature. It's under 8 feet long. Daniela, would you drive it? Well, I don't know if many of the listeners uh, would remember this, but two words strike me, Sinclair C5. George, does that ring a, ring a bell? Certainly. <laughs> Explain oh. what the Sinclair C5 was. Uh, I think that's a seminal moment. Was it the 1980s? Are we going back? The, 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 an inventor came up with this new person mover. It was not quite a scooter. It was not quite a car. It was like a uh, an individual moving Thing with three wheels was it three wheels George yeah I think help so. me out yeah, I think, no I think so uh, yeah uh, it was it disappeared without a trace um, and I can't really see the benefits of being in a teeny tiny micro car well I can think of an example in another direction go back a little bit further and there was a thing called the bubble car and this this looked remarkably like what I think should be pronounced, Henry, is the Microlino. Surely it sounds more glamorous like that. Excuse um, me. I can see <laughs> I'm that. Just ge- I'm just guessing here. Um, but, you know, it was small, and humans who climbed in it looked like goldfish that had been stuffed in a bowl that was a bit too small. You're giving um, it the hard sell. Well, you know, I mean, it was, it, it was fantastic for getting into short. I'd, I'd drive it in a city... What I would not do is drive it down a motorway. No, I wouldn't advise it, and I'm not sure if that uh, is the uh, manufacturer's idea. Maybe of they're not even allowed on motorways. I don't. I, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Anyway, we can look forward to seeing them uh, rolling out later in the year. Well, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of today's show. Daniela Pellet and George Brock, thanks very much for joining me here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Julia Webster, and Paula Schultz. Our studio manager was David Stevens. There's more music. Now. Next, then at 7pm London time, I'm back with The Culture Show and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily, that's at 10pm. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow, that's 1800 London time. For now, from me, Henry Rees Sheridan, it's goodbye.